imagine how bad it was for them to experience it. And the things that I have heard, the things that they have told me. One man was, was telling me of the torture that he endured. He was standing in front of me, shaking from head to toe. And I told him, I said, you don't have to tell me. And he said, no, you don't understand. I do have to tell you. And yet I survived. And that's what they tell me. Because sometimes people call them victims. And they will look at them and say, I am not a victim. I am a survivor. We're back for another edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Hi, I'm Byron Tyler. Glad, friend, that you could take time out of your schedule and stop by and join us as we visit with today's guest, who's back in the studio for round two. Couldn't get enough of Susan Hagee with the ministry Abundant Hope International the last time we got together. It's an incredible work, Susan, that God has given you. And I say that because, as we mentioned last time, this was a reluctant thing about even going to Israel for the first time. And yet, sometimes God has a way of changing the direction of our hearts, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's in charge. If you don't think so, just buck him a few times. <laughs> no, he, he very definitely... What I like to think about is that if you are obedient to what he tells you, he will lead you into what is on your DNA. You look on your DNA with a supernatural microscope, it's written there what he made you for. And on mine, it says Holocaust survivors, but I didn't know that until I finally gave in Reminding friends that Abundant Hope International is an organization with passion to help Holocaust survivors, especially in the land of Israel. You've got partners and volunteers around the world. You're visiting Holocaust survivors to help alleviate loneliness, evaluating and meeting their needs, renovating their homes, counting them as your friends. And, of course, COVID pandemic has changed some of the ways that you do your ministry. But you've made some adjustments so that survivors know that you really do care. Yes, we have. We have. And we have gotten around things with the COVID. Um, We were not allowed to go any more than 100 meters outside our house. And I got in my car and just drove to where they were anyway. Um, I I went to see whoever I could, even if it's standing on the street and waving to them at the window. I wanted to make sure we were there. And I had my translator making phone calls to all the survivors that we know all over. So 100 meters, was there a store within 100 meters to get your food, or how did you get... You were allowed to go and get your groceries, but they kind of monitored who was going and how often. So they kept an eye on you. But I don't know. I don't know if it was God blinding eyes or whatever. I was driving everywhere, and nobody ever stopped me. Nobody ever asked me, hey, hey, you know. No, I just went, and they let me go. But it did help, too, that the Army needed help in delivering food during that time, and they asked us to help, and so we did. Last time we were talking about these precious Holocaust survivors, they're aging now. One every 30 minutes passes. That's correct. So you've got some that are 104 years old? Yes, yes. We Well, our oldest one has passed away, simply age. So our oldest one right now is 99. So she's working on 100 now. (laughs) (laughs) 100 years old. Uh, You took us inside the home of survivors the last time we were sharing. Many of these survivors you mentioned are of Russian descent. Yes. Their home uh, environment reflects some of that. You've met some special people through these years, haven't you? I really have. I mean, just like we have friends that are more special to us than someone else. Well, some of the survivors just, um, 
I don't know. They, I, I meet them and I just love them to pieces. And I just want to put my arms around them and kiss them and hug them. And yeah. How do you deal, Susan, with such at times? I know it's a process for them to open up and share their heart with you because they have to build that trust factor. Yes. But when they build that trust factor and they begin to share with you these deeply sensitive and emotional feelings, I mean, that has to affect you. How do you deal with that? long time ago, the Lord was very clear to me that I had to be a conduit, that whatever they gave me, it had now had to go through me up and give it to God. Don't hang on to it. Because I was hanging on to it in the beginning. And I would go and visit, and I'd go home and cry for the rest of the night. And I'd go and visit and cry for the rest of the night. And I couldn't keep that up. And that's when he showed me, you're not supposed to hold on to it. Supposed to give it to me, just like we give our burdens to him. So that's what I do. I have to maintain that that openness. But let me tell you, if you think about when your parents die or your grandparents die, try experiencing that over and over and over. I cry a lot. I do. And I've lost some very special people in the last year. And some of them I haven't been able to see. And I just received a phone call. They're gone. And then I just sit down and cry. And I can't do anything. So my job is to go and plow those stony hearts and make them compassionate and prepare them. And someone asked me yesterday, do you ever see anybody recognize who the Messiah is? And the Lord was very clear to me that I was not to do the work. He was going to talk to them. Okay, how he was going to do it, I didn't know. But a woman named Fira, who we were talking to, and she always enjoys, she always said, you're so sweet. We love you. There's something about you. You know, this is what they always say. There's something about you. And of course, it's Yeshua in us. Well, one day she said to me, so I I guess you know Marjorie. No, I don't know anyone named Marjorie. Well, you're both believers. You don't know her. She thinks if you're a believer, you (laughs) automatically know every other believer. And I said, no, I don't. She goes, well, Marjorie comes to see me. And I said, oh, I don't know where Marjorie came from. I don't know who she was. Mm -hmm. And she visited her on a frequent basis. And after about two years, she goes, I forgot to tell you, I took Yeshua into my heart. Isn't that amazing? Marjorie (laughs) helped me. And then she just died this year. I know where she is. God was faithful by my Introducing her to the softness, she accepted another person who was the one who told her who the Messiah was. And this is what we're seeing happen. It's not my job. My job is to to plow up the stony hearts, to be compassionate, to be loving. Well, didn't Paul say some water and some Some, sow? That's right. Some reap. And some plow. And that's me. You're the plower. I'm the plower. What? Susan, have been some of the ways that the survivors have helped you to see life through different eyes? Their capacity for forgiveness is way beyond any of ours. They do not hold the German people responsible. They are very forgiving. They say it was the Nazis. And of course, today, you know, we know part of why the Nazis were like that. I don't know if you're familiar with the entire program of putting them on methamphetamines. So the Nazi soldiers were on a variety. They were on LSD. They were on methamphetamines. And this is why they were able to drive all night. This is why they were able to fight beyond what a normal person would. 
We know now what drove them. Imagine how bad it was for them to experience it. And the things that I have heard, the things that they have told me. One man was was telling me of the torture that he endured. He was standing in front of me, shaking from head to toe. And I told him, I said, you don't have to tell me. And he said, no, you don't understand. I do have to tell you. And yet I survived. And that's what they tell me. Because sometimes people call them victims. And they will look at them and say, I am not a victim. I am a survivor. And they are. And they continue to survive through stroke, heart attack, cancer, cancer, cancer. And their children die. And they survive that too. They continue to survive and live into their hundreds. They are an amazing people with a will to live that is beyond anything I know. The resilience. How are the survivors viewed by the citizens of Israel? They are considered to be a treasure by the, the general Israel. But many of them look at them as they're old, they're elderly, you know, okay, get on with life already. And they do not treat them well. So it's a strange combination. These are our treasure. Don't mess with them. But at the same time, they're getting tired of it. Because they keep living on, and they have very strong opinions. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know many senior adults that don't have strong opinions? Exactly. Exactly. The older you get, you know, the stronger you are with what you think. <laughs> so you're coming up on an anniversary of 18 years. Yes. 2008. 2004 I started. Well, 2004 yeah, is when you actually started. Yes. But the Ministry of Abundant Hope yes. came into fruition around 2008, around wasn't it? Around 2008. What have been some barriers that you've had to overcome for Abundant Life Hope International to do the work that you're called to? Staying in Israel. (laughs) That was the biggest one. You could go for three months at that time on a tourist visa. You could go and renew it for another three months. So I could stay for six months. And then I would go out for two or three months and then go back. I did it with the permission of the ministry office. So I was very careful to stay within their, their method. And it was no more than three to six months out of every 12 months. So I stayed within all of their rules, all of their laws. I got volunteer visas that I could stay for two years at a time. That was the next thing I did. But the volunteer visa, if you did that twice, then you were required to leave Israel for one year. And that was when I had to leave for 365 days. And that was hard. We had many problems during that time. I wasn't there. I came back in. I didn't want to go the volunteer visa route again because I would have to leave again. Yeah. So I started looking into residency. And when I asked about residency, I did the whole thing. I filled out the application, took it to the ministry office. And the manager said, oh, that's the wrong one, and ripped up all my work. And I thought, oh, no. So she went and got another paper, said, this is what you need. Because we have a nonprofit in Israel, I was allowed to apply for residency because I'd been doing this work for so long. And I was required to have a letter from a Knesset member. You have no idea how hard to get is to get a letter from a Knesset member. How hard is it, Susan? Oh, impossible. <laughs> but I asked someone for help in ACO, and he said, I'll be back. So he came back about three or four days later, handed me a letter and said, this is better than any letter you'll ever get. This is God. It was an Arab Knesset member who asked permission for me to stay and work for Holocaust survivors. 
When that letter hit Jerusalem, I immediately got my residency. That was a God-sized story. That was a God-sized story. Yes. And so I have a 10-year residency there for that. So after 10 years, you have to reapply? or I can reapply for another 10 years if I want. You reside now in Akko. Yes. Give us some behind the scenes of what life is like in Akko, and where is Akko in Israel? Akko is north of Haifa and about 25-minute drive to the Lebanon border. And Akko is between five and 7,000 years old. It's the oldest seaport in the world. And it was originally uh, run by quite a number of people. Different people took over, just like Megiddo had constantly somebody conquering it. Same thing there. And you actually had to come into Akko to go up to Megiddo. That was the entry point. Really? Yes. The spice trade, all the trade. The Templars were there. Then the Ottoman Empire came in and they took over. And uh, that they were in charge of that for quite a while. And they were the last one before it fell to the British Empire. But quite a few people were there. And Paul was there. I'm sure you've heard of a town that he was in called Ptolemais. P-T-O-L-E-M-I-A-S. Yes. That's Ptolemais. It's Akko. That's the same town. It's the same town. Oh, my. And if you come to Akko, you can go to their excavation under the city through the caverns, you can go through um, the – it's amazing what the Templars have done under there. Massive caverns that they dug out, and they're beautiful, reflectorium, and, and just absolutely incredible to see. Yeah. And you can go under there, and there, marked on the map, is take the route of Paul. And you can go through and see where Paul was and what he did. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's what's so beautiful about traveling to Israel, which I did in 2018 on two occasions. What you see on top <laughs> is uh, only a smidgen. <laughs> yes. So much is down below. And, I mean, that's how they were able to find David's palace. You yes. know, I mean, here's a, right outside the, uh, the Temple Mount, there's a parking lot, and somebody wants to build a, a building. Well, you can't build a building unless you dig down first and see what's down. And when they dug down, they found... David's palace being excavated, and it is incredible. Yes, with with artifacts. I think they found a signet ring. They found coins. Yeah. Matter of fact, we had the opportunity in our group, and I think many get to do this, there's the sifting center that's established. So when anything that's excavated from the Temple Mound, it's put in trucks and taken to the sifting center. People who travel to Israel, now you can't keep what you find. But we found some first-century coins in our group, and you get to spend a couple hours there, and there's archaeologists helping you, and you sift through buckets of dirt, put it in a screen, you wash it off, and you see what you can find. That's right. It's an incredible thing to do when you go to Israel. Well, if you come to Akko, we'll help you to get down into the (laughs) – and as a matter of fact, okay, they found the caverns underneath, and you can also see where the prisoners in the 1948, when they were fighting – And the British were there, and there were prisoners put into the prison in Akko, and the um, the Haganah, they blew up the wall and released the prisoners. And the prisoners right there, you can go see it. You can read all about it and how – and that was the last thing before the British left. So now they just discovered another layer underneath, and it's that way all over. They're finding major archaeological digs. Every day in Israel now. There's a young couple, and I follow them on YouTube. It's Sergio and his wife. She's from Nazareth. He's actually 
Russian Jewish descent, but they're both believers, live in Nazareth. They have a YouTube channel. They take you on all of these little things, fun things to know. And so a lot of people would love to go to Israel, might not be able to go, but there's some great resources. There's a lot of great resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. There, there's so much that you can learn about and discover. I mean, things that, that I read, I'm like, what? For, for instance, in Jaffa, you know, one of the things that was being made fun of with the Jewish people was that it never said anything about Simon the Tanner, who is mentioned in the Bible. Well, they were doing some excavating, and they went to fix something at a house. And when they uncovered the doorway, right above the doorway, it said Simon the Tanner. <laughs> this kind of thing happens all the time in yeah. Israel, and the word is proven true. So what's your favorite place to eat in Akko? Oh, easy. Gallery of Simone. That's easy. It's Christian Arabs, and it is the best service, the best food. I go there, and they know exactly what I want. They just bring it out. Their lemonade is better than any I've had before. And their pita bread that they put the garlic butter on and they toast it, (laughs) it's better than any place I've been. And believe me, if you're going to get a fatouche salad, go there. So fatouche salad, that's the place to go. Absolutely. (laughs) Oh, my. Okay, so life in Israel. What are some adjustments that you had to make? I mean, after living in America for so long. The first trip that I made to the grocery store, um, I really didn't know what to expect. First of all, the carts don't go straight, so you're all over, and it's turning, and it's backwards. And I got to the end of the grocery store. I'd been through the whole store. My cart was empty. I didn't see anything I wanted. So I had to readjust my idea of what I want, and I had to look at it differently. So I went to get some frozen meat, and it said 100% meat. What kind of meat? It doesn't tell you. It just said 100% meat. So I, I had to think differently. And eventually what I have gotten to is I like the fresh vegetables and the fruits. I go to the shuk and I get them cheap. And uh, I even have one guy in Akko that when I show up and I want two carrots, he gives me 20 every time (laughs) I have to share with people. (laughs) Abundance of carrots. Abundance of any vegetable that I buy from him, anything. He just always gives me a whole lot. The hummus I love. It's Absolutely. The dates. I mean, there's so much fresh produce. And we talked about the last show about the banana groves, but there's avocados, uh, mangoes. I mean, the nuts. The nuts. Oh, you go nuts for the nuts. I love Absolutely. it. Yes. Absolutely. It's so good. And uh, of course, I like shishlik. Do you like shishlik? Tell me what that is. I don't think I had shishlik. Sh- I don't know if I can say it's, it properly. <laughs> it's pieces of chicken that are taken from the thigh, and all the fat is cut off, and they put it on a skewer, and they grill it, and it's so tender. You know, I think I did have that. Shishlik. Shishlik. Yeah. You can okay. have chicken shishlik. You can have lamb shishlik. Yeah. You know, there's a place, and I think it's close to Mount Gibo, I believe, if I'm saying that correctly. I think you're saying it okay. There's a, we call it the Spice Farm, and it's a, not many tourists go there because buses, it's hard to get in and out of. Okay. And there's nothing really around there. Our group always went, and some of the best food, the people, their family runs this place, and they grow these spices there on the farm, and they're all like put into the cuisine that they make there fresh. Okay. Do you like Zeptar? Yes. So have you told the people what zetar is? No. I know I've eaten it because they told me that's what it was, but help me out. It's made from hyssop. Hyssop, 
You remember when Christ was on the cross and they offered him hyssop and they dipped it in the vinegar. It's hyssop. And hyssop, if you eat too much hyssop, it will clean you out. And that is the word that is used about cleansing. So hyssop so is you, made into zetar. Yeah, I remember they gave us some of that. We had multiple plates. It's nice to share plates when you go, you know. Yes. <laughs> you can share. There's, there's nothing like taking a fresh pita, taking it through the hummus with the olive oil and oh, a zatar. Yes. Right? Yeah. Oh, you're making me want to. <laughs> i tell you what. I would love to travel back. There's people that have a heart for the Jewish people and specifically for Holocaust survivors. And there's opportunities for them to travel to Israel to meet you and to serve those that you serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. We can handle um, some uh, tour groups that come in, and they can come and see us, and we'll talk about it and give them a snack and have them meet a Holocaust survivor if they want to make those arrangements. If somebody's looking to come and volunteer by on their own, they can contact me. And, and we'll take them through the process. Susan, are there any specific needs right now, urgent needs that the ministry has? Always finances to be able to do things. And I would appreciate prayer for more people who can help us out. We have had trouble with our nonprofit there. We actually had someone who had created a problem for us, and it's just now being corrected. When I go back, it'll be open. And we would appreciate prayer because... We're going to ask the IDF to start helping us. They have where they can do two years of community service before they serve or after or instead. So there's different ways they can do it. They work with nonprofits, and they asked us before if they could send them to us. We're going to do that. This means working with the Jewish IDF people to visit survivors, deliver things. It would expand what we're doing it's a whole new ball game, and oh my, I love this. And plus, these are young people. Yes, that they would get to experience the heritage. Yes, of their people and they hear yes. the stories. And we would be able to actually assign one or two to a survivor, and for the entire two years that they serve with us, they would work for them only. They would be available for anything they need. Wow. So we need to pray for that. Definitely. I'm, I'm going to need prayer for that. Uh, administrative, it's, it's a huge administrative change. It opens up things, and it's going to cost more because we do have to pay them. It's a very small amount, but we do have to pay them. Um, I do have uh, a new translator. I need more translators. That's what, not What easy. languages are we talking about? English first. I got to know what they're saying. Um, Hebrew, Russian, Yiddish, French. But the Russian and the Hebrew and the English are the three that we need the most. So how's your Hebrew? Uh, very minimal. There's something you can pray for. When I go back, I have decided I'm going to get a teacher. I did that once before, but then I had to leave. That was when I had to leave for a year, and I lost everything I learned. Yeah. So when I go back, I'm going to, again, take lessons and see how that goes. Okay, we'll definitely pray for that in your Please. Hebrew <laughs> as you enter the Hebrew Academy of Language. Yes. Uh, Susan, if someone listening knows of a survivor of the Holocaust who maybe lives close by in their city, what's the best way for them to start a relationship with them if they don't have, that they know about them, but they don't really have a relationship with them? Thank you for asking that, because this is something that's on my heart. I have people who tell me, I have survivors live near me. What are you going to do for it? And I ask, what are you going to do for them? 
okay, you go to, you can either go to the Jewish Community Center and tell them that you want to help survivors. What do they need? Find out their needs. You can go to a nursing home where they might be, maybe a Jewish nursing home, or if there's one that they know of, you approach them as a friend. Please do not evangelize to them. Please be a friend. Be a family member. This is what they need. You know, if you go at them with it like that, they're not going to want you to come around. These are Jewish people who need to know the love of Yeshua through you. Let God open any doors. Don't push it. Don't don't try. Let God do this. He will. He'll handle it. Go and find out what they need because most of the time it's errands and things or writing a letter for them. They have arthritis. They can't write. Or the other thing we have found is they feel like they're not worth writing, that nobody really wants to hear from them. Give them love, unconditional love, and you will just change their life and yours. (laughs) And yours too. Susan, this is great. Two wonderful programs with you and Abundant Hope International, the work that you're doing among Holocaust survivors in Israel and other places around the world, as you've given us encouragement to. Yes, yes. We want to stay in touch with you. Do you have a newsletter or a prayer letter that goes out? How can we keep... Um, I have not been putting out the newsletter lately, but I am going to be starting that up again. That's on our website, and you can also get on. You can sign up on our website. You can sign up for the newsletter. It just has right there at the bottom. Of course, the website, again, ahi-il.org. That's it. And we've got to mention the book again, Why Is Great-Grandma So Sad? by... None other than Susan Hagee. You wrote this book. That's right. And I'm working on another one. Another book? Yes. You're going to have to come back just to talk about the new book. I'll be glad to. I'll be very glad to. And I I want to remind everyone, this is a limited time offer. They're dying very fast. Please do not delay. If you know someone with a survivor, a survivor that you can help, please don't wait. It'll be too late. Susan, thank you again for what you're doing for Christ's kingdom in the name of Yeshua for these Holocaust survivors and those volunteers that uh, help support you. Friend, please pray for this ministry, Abundant Hope International, and these requests that Susan has asked us to pray for. Get a copy of this book. You can go to the website again. The address is ahi-il.org and get your copy of the book that Susan has written and learn about the new book that's coming out, too. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. Thanks for stopping by. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. 